Okay, Cortis, no, no questions? You ready to do this? I'm ready, baby. Okay, I'm going to do the intro. Oh, hi, you're listening to Service from Hell, a podcast featuring people that are currently in customer service positions or the lucky ones that got out and all the good, bad, and infinitely irritating things that go along with that work. I'm actor and writer Kate Gaffney, and I'm uniquely qualified to discuss this as I used to work at a very busy and very popular comedy club in Los Angeles. And at least one of you listening right now has probably grabbed me and told me you were ready to order when I was running around like a crazy person. So let's eat. I'd like to welcome our guest, Curtis Nelson, born and raised in the Great Plains of Oklahoma by way of Arkansas. Curtis moved to L.A. in 1993 to pursue his acting career that was born out of his love for cinema. Due to his background in sports and athletics, Curtis found himself to be a natural fit in the fitness industry, in security, and eventually in management positions on the Sunset Strip at the world-famous Comedy Store. Curtis has been married to his wife, Haley, what up, Haley, a school teacher who is super badass and the best party host around for 24 years after meeting her when she requested, and I love this, a song while he was a DJ at In Cahoots, which is a country dance hall and saloon that your host has been to more times than she cares to admit. Curtis and Haley have raised two boys who are both in their 20s and passes his time with his family in the mountains just outside of Los Angeles with his four dogs, two cats, and their, wait for it, 26-year-old clownfish who I've met and who they take good care of, but is it's insane that that clownfish is 26. I don't understand. <laughs> I better know Curtis from crying in the office of the comedy club where I used to work, telling him that if one more terrible producer or terrible customer was abusive to me, I was going to walk out and quit and stomp out and be very dramatic. He was always very calmly able to talk me off of the ledge, which I both love and hate him for. So, Curtis, tell us how different is L.A. from Oklahoma? How many times have you been paid to ride a horse in front of ca the camera? What have you been doing during lockdown? Tell us. <laughs> um, Oklahoma and California is about as far apart as you would ever imagine you could get, really. I mean, it's there are two different two different worlds, and uh, the people are less friendly in California to say the easy, <laughs> say the best. What? That's the first time anyone has ever said that, Curtis. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and how many times have I been paid to ride a horse? Uh, probably only like a handful of times. I mean, it's one thing that I never got to do more of, you know, and we talked about that in the office mm -hmm. and stuff. So it was always frustrating not to being able to do that. Um, the one thing you found out as an actor when I first moved here coming into LA is that all the, um, all those special skills they say to list on your resume they're not interested in those special skills at all. And, and especially if you actually are really good at them, the things I could never get were um, unless I was like doing extra work or background work or something like that in movies or TV, I would never get baseball parts or be able to read for them or, or cowboy parts or stuff like that, you know, for the most part. I mean, I eventually did it as far as like the lead parts in like horse horse riding skills but with baseball i could never do it you'd show up i had to go to auditions where you actually had to even try out so for like the first time they were casting moneyball with steven soderberg was the director um it, it ended up being uh who was the director's name it ended up doing it um, uh, uh, uh i apologize but it was the uh uh, not Aaron, Aaron Sorkin wrote it, right? Hold on, let me look. Yes, Sorkin wrote it. But Steven Soderbergh was going to write and direct it originally. And um, But they had these huge tryouts where like literally like it would be like a college tryout for a baseball team. Yeah, everybody showed up and I did 
really well. And, and the guy was actually surprised because he couldn't believe that I was in my late thirties and he was like, really? <laughs> so the point being is it, it never came into play. And the, the part I wanted to get eventually went to Chris Pratt and, uh, he looked nothing like the guy, but I look exactly like the guy he was playing. <laughs> that is, there's almost nothing worse. Like there, like you wanted to be that they just went against type and they hired like a short black dude that you're like, well, I couldn't have, that wouldn't have been me anyway. Yeah. But, ugh, but yeah. But he couldn't swing a bat. He couldn't barely throw a ball. But, you know, what do I care? <laughs> You're so, over I mean, it. It's like, yeah, I'm over it. <laughs> but no, I mean, uh, so like um, that was the difference in uh, in Hollywood, I think, is being an actor is, is it was always a uh, real eye opening to me in the Hollywood industry where they weren't they would. I, I feel like in the Hollywood casting system, they they want to see people doing the work. What can you elaborate on that? What do you mean? They don't want the person to walk through the door and be like, this is me. I mean, I, I once was lucky enough to have a conversation with Billy Bob Thornton on two separate occasions because he's from Arkansas and and uh, he was just fantastic. And he was telling me, it's like, if I had never written Sling Blade, I would never have been able to do, to do a film about true Southerners or show that experience because people in L.A. and, and New York, they have no idea what you and I know. He's like, they don't know anything about the characters. They don't know anything about our lifestyle, how we were raised, the people that we around and the characters. So if we don't write those stories, then they they don't know how to write them. They, they, they don't know that to tell that story. So the one thing I found out in Hollywood is when anytime they did a, a movie, even sometimes based on novels where Southerners were involved, to me, it was kind of offensive because they, they, they kind of it's a portrayal of what they think the Southern lifestyle is like. Does it make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Instead of it, instead of actually, you know, appreciating, you know, what the I mean, what a person from there would really have a voice of saying about it, you know, and so can you paint like a different? Okay, because that's really interesting. Can you paint a difference between um, like a an interaction that a film has shown Southerners having versus the reality, or or a, a, maybe a scene where you were like, mm, Southerners don't do that at all. Well, I mean, like um, one one movie comes to mind is mostly uh, it, most of the time with Southern characters, it's it's people they have an idea of what the Southern accent is, and it's very it's it's always over the top usually whenever Southerner when when actors play Southerners, and or it's just not good at all. I mean, there I mean uh, there's a movie on right now called Burden with Tom Wilkinson who where he plays a Grand Dragon, and it's incredible how bad the performance <laughs> is. I mean, it's like you're watching this guy and you're like, oh, he's never lived in this world. He's never. I mean, it's like he showed up on set, got his sides and just started doing a, a trying to do an accent It's almost as bad as Kevin Costner's British accent mm. in Prince of Thieves. Oh, yeah, and you're just like, what is going on where this is like a, and it's a very powerful movie. It had. um uh, Forrest Whitaker in it. He was playing like a priest that was going against the uh, KKK in this small little town. And the Southern and, and the actor that played um, uh, the cousin in Troy, he he's the lead actor. That's like the guy that gets kicked out of the KKK because he's not willing to be with them and do and and uh, fall in line with what they're trying to do. And he, and he separates himself from them. But Wilkinson is just so bad at it. And there's like points where he's supposed to have these very aggressive poignant moments with the main, the lead character who's like his son and he's like his father to him. And they're just so bad because mm. there's just, there's just not that natural. I mean, he, he's certainly no 
you never believed anything he said to me looking at it. And it's like, you know, and, and you could see where he even maybe he wasn't saying the lines the way they should be said because he was worried about his accent. Wow. And so you're just like, oh, this is just, and it's just disheartening. You know, it's like, you know, because uh, when you go in Hollywood, there's been times where I've gone into uh, auditions and it's just for a cop or something like that. And they're like, oh, I've, I don't have an a, a extremely strong Southern voice, but I can make one. But then they'll be like, oh, I've never pictured him being from the South, you know, and you're like, oh, yeah. so I just have a little bit of like a Burt Reynolds draw, I guess. And then all of a sudden they get, they go, oh, no, we don't want that. Can you think of one that was done well? I mean, obviously Billy Bob Thornton, but that's, I don't even know if you would say that's done. Not offhand. See this it. is because, I mean, it's like Brad Pitt, obviously, is fantastic at it. But once again, Brad Pitt's from there. Yeah. You know, he, he's from the South. You yeah. Know? I mean, if you count Missouri, so, it's a, yeah. yeah. And, and, and it, things get lost in subtlety, I feel like, in acting. And sometimes, you know, it's just the over the top is what you get. And, Boy, and that's true. You know, they. Yeah that's the frustrating thing. And it's like, almost like if I went in and was like, well, how y'all doing today? And I just went crazy and just did this horribly bad Southern over the top accent. Everybody be like, Whoa, look at that. <laughs> look at him crushing it. <laughs> so, <laughs> I don't have you ever done that? Have you ever gone into an audition and been like, I'm going to talk like this the whole time. Have you done that? Uh, no, uh. no, even, even, you know, no, <laughs> That's good. I mean, way to be authentic. I think I, if they were like, you just have to sound like a, a caricature, I'd be like, okay, I'm sound like okay. Um, so, okay, so I, I want to go back a little bit. So, was a, was LA mecca for you when you were a kid, and you were like, oh no, I'm event, like I'm getting there. When did you decide you were getting out and moving to the big city? Well, I mean, I, I grew up loving movies. I mean, I didn't like TV. A lot of people from I'm I'm I was raised in the 80s essentially i was born in 1972 so i mean for me my teenage and uh influential years i was just a film fanatic i i watched i mean that was back when cable first came out and hbo i watched it all day every day i've probably seen like you know the the, the classic hbo action flicks like road warrior and terminator and all that stuff a thousand times each you know and of course the classic westerns and stuff like that but i came out to la because i literally was i traveled america for a couple of years working on airlines and I had seen a lot of America. Um, I had worked for a, um, a mechanical engineering company that put in all the uh, phones in the backs of the seats. So like, if you remember back in ATT had the phones in the back of the seats, yeah. you pop the credit card and they pop out. I was on one of only two crews that actually did that to begin with when I was only 19 years old. Wow. So I had about two years where I just was on the Western side of the United States. I'd never been to the East side of the United States. So I would spend about two or three months in each of these towns or cities. And I'd spent a couple of different trips in LA. And so I knew LA. And so I'd, I'd been there and I'd seen it. I had gotten laid off and I was literally back in Oklahoma with my mom. And she asked me, she goes, what would you, what would you do if you could do anything you wanted? And, and I, cause I told her, I said, I didn't want to do that anymore. And I said, you know, I was out in LA and I would, I just loved it. I thought it was great that, I mean, I, I love being around Venice beach and I used to go work out at gold's gym or world gym, excuse me. And Arnold Schwarzenegger and Lou Ferrigno would be there and stuff. So I was like, I'd go out there and I'd, I'd become an actor and I, I'd love to be in movies. And, and my mom literally, it was almost, it was like a scene out of a movie. We stopped at the stoplight and she turned and she looked at me and she goes, why don't you? And so I was like, 
I don't know. Why don't I? So I had a bunch, I had some money saved up from the jobs I'd done and stuff. And, uh, I just got in my car and drove to LA wow. and lived in my car for probably six months before my brother finally got so mad at me. Cause he was working in, uh, he was living in Glendale and working in Burbank, uh, working in Burbank. And he was just like, if you don't stop living in your car and you come live on my goddamn couch, I'm going to come out there and grab you. <laughs> and, uh, so, cause I didn't want to burden anybody. I didn't want to have to rely on anybody. So I slept on my car behind on Abbott Kinney in Venice beach behind world gym. And I'd get up in the morning and I, by the way, I had a pet ferret and I'd Curtis, live in the car with pet Curtis, ferret. this is a lie. These things you're saying are not true. You lived in uh-huh. a car with a ferret. Mm-hmm. Okay. In a car with a ferret. Okay. okay. And, uh, <laughs> and, uh, so I would get up in the morning, go to the gym, work out, get, take a shower and do all that stuff and then go about my day. It actually made me pretty proactive when oh. I first got here. <laughs> I'll bet not a whole lot to do in a car. <laughs> yeah. Wait. So, so um, would the ferret be free range in the car, just like able to run around? Wait. Run around, where would it poop? Where? Um, I had a little cage for him and stuff, and he's like, they're like cats, you know. Wow. And he would just do that. But I would walk him with a leash. I had like a little harness for him and everything, <laughs> and I walk him around. Eventually, I went and uh, that that mistake of uh, excuse me, the, the gesture of my brother having me sleep on his couch. His roommate eventually left the door open on purpose and let my ferret out, and he got away. Oh, that's <laughs> when I wasn't there because he didn't like the fact that my brother was letting him, while he was paying rent. He didn't like the fact that I was living on the couch for free for my brother. So he punished your animal? Like, that's so ridiculous. Oh, that's such an L.A. story. All these wounded mm-hmm. people moving to that city, just being passive aggressive and terrible to one another. Like, <laughs> Jesus. So how long did you live on your brother's couch? Uh, just a few months. And then uh, um, then I got a job at In Cahoots that you talked about earlier. I love In Cahoots. So, um, and uh, okay. we can go over that. In yeah, a we'll, we'll get there. Too. We'll get there. Um, okay, so so you so where do you plug in? Did you start taking acting classes? Did you? How did you let people know? Hey, I'm I'm here for acting because I think there's a misconception of as soon as you you know get off the bus in L.A. or live in the car with your ferret or whatever that people all of a sudden are like, oh, good, another actor has joined no. the crew. Like, how does it I work? I was like Kane from Kung Fu. I would literally just be like, I- I'll tell you a good story that has no real good ending. I didn't know what to do. I had no clue. I mean, I would get the backstage West and I would do all that stuff and get the variety. And I would literally just try to find some acting classes that I could afford or things that I liked. And, you know, and I would audit a lot of them. And I eventually started taking an acting class at the, at the basement of the Scientology center Woo! off Franklin Avenue. Found out real quick that that wasn't the place for me, but I did it because it was cheap. It was given by an old native American guy. It was like full blood Native American. But when I say I was like came from Kung Fu, I just knew what I knew. So I loved the movie Terminator 2. And I remembered and I had all the uh, the laser discs and stuff of the movie. And I had um, seen that Mally Finn cast the movie. And so I was like, well, where's Mally, Finn? where's Mally Finn's office? Maybe I could ask her some advice or whatever. So literally for like three days, I found her offices and they were in the top of the building of 6565 Sunset. I would pass it on the way to work all the time. And I went and sat in the lobby of her pause casting for, office. Pause for one second. So for people who don't live in LA or haven't been there or don't know what building he's talking about, 6565 Sunset is like this like sort of relatively well-known address. And the building is massive. It's a high rise, right? Am I thinking of the right building? Big black building. Yeah. 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 Okay. So when Curtis says he was sitting in the lobby, like her office was one of probably hundreds in that building. And so it's such a, that's such a sweet, like very LA story of like, all right, I'll just, it's 
like a New York City high rise of just being like, well, someone from that particular office is going to come yeah. down that elevator. I'm going to stop. Okay, so keep going. So you would sit but in the lobby. I actually would make my way up to her office. Ooh. So I would go to her office and I would sit in her lobby office. How would they let lobby. you do that? I don't know. I, I don't think they were casting at the time. Uh, so she wasn't really busy. And so literally for like three days, nobody, people would just come, like one person would come in. And I mean, it's a small lobby too. It was like, you know, the size of a living room or something. And they would come through, they'd see me nod their head and they'd go through the doors. And this happened for two days. And then on the third day, uh, I was sitting in the lobby and I could see that through the door to a woman sitting in her office. And I, I literally was just reading a book. I was sitting in the lobby, just reading a book. I brought my own book. And this woman comes out and she's like, looks back and forth. And she goes, are you waiting for somebody? And I was like, uh, no, I'm here to meet Mally. Uh, my name's Curtis and I'm just from out of town and blah, blah, blah. And made up my little spiel. And she's like, I'm Mally. And I was like, oh, and she goes, come on back in. Oh. And she literally took me in the office and I, I shit you not, Kate, she talked to me for probably about 45 minutes. Bless her. I should do how I could get headshots, where I should go. You're obviously too green for me to do anything with you now, but you should do this, this, and this. And just was so caring and so nice and so sweet. <sighs> and I just left and I did everything she said. And the only other time I ever got to try to talk to Molly was at an acting class. And it was like one of those Q and A's where she was talking to the class and then giving her advice and stuff like that. And then afterwards she stayed and answered questions from people if they wanted to come up and talk to her or they introduce themselves. And I've always hated that Hollywood scene of trying to go up and go on, by the way, uh, I love you and blah, 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 and whatever. And if you could just do this. And I just never was into the schmooze side of the game. So I never said anything to her. About six months later, she died. Oh, Curtis, you can't. <laughs> she died of this cancer. Is, and, oh, my God. And it was terrible. But I always wanted to <laughs> call her and thank her and everything because she was so nice and so sweet. And I never wanted to take advantage of her after that. And and I never reintroduced myself to her, I guess is what I should say. Sure. But she was a cool, cool chick, Mally Finn. It's so interesting. I mean, bless her. She's probably Irish with that name. And of course, she was nice to you because just Irish people are amazing. Whatever. I'm not biased. But what is so interesting is when we first land in L.A., and this has been my experience, it sounds like yours, and I've, I've heard countless people say this, because you don't know, you don't know what to be afraid of. So you do bold things like go sit in the lobby of a casting director's office, which literally everyone would have said, oh, my God, you're insane. Why? Would you? No, like that's not how it's done. But it's like, but it opened a door for you. It was like, here's what you need to do. She spent 45 minutes with you. You didn't push. Whereas I feel like, you know, five years into L.A., people have beaten you down so much and there's so much fear that you're like, OK, well, all the bold bravery I had when I first got here, I kind of don't have now because I don't want to offend someone. And someone said they'd ruin me. And so because they said that, well, now I believe them. And, blah, blah. and it has this sort of trickle down effect that when you're first newly there, you know, some people never lose that. And when they don't lose that, more opportunities happen. I mean, there's this famous story of Brad Pitt doing background work. And like just right. wandering off set and being like, fuck all, I'm going to go audition or do whatever. And, you know, ca background casting places will put the fear of God in you. Like, we will blacklist you. You will never work in Hollywood. Like, don't do that. And I get it. They've got a film. There's millions of dollars, whatever. I'm not denigrating the importance of that. But also the boldness of someone like a Brad Pitt 
I mean, just being like, oh, no, fuck off. I'm going to make this work for me. I mean, you like sitting in the lobby is very similar to that. You weren't disrespecting anybody. You weren't on the clock and you waited to be asked, but you put yourself in a position to be asked. And I think that that is something that I don't know. Did you keep that sort of chutzpah as you continued on? I did for a long bit. After a while, I got really, really disenfranchised. You know, I felt really I mean, I just, you know, I hit a bad spot. I mean, probably about 10 years ago where I was just like, you know what? Fuck this business. Jesus fucking Christ. I mean, I, I would keep trying and doing stuff and I would call my agent and I would, you know, can you do this? But probably the first 15 years I was out here, I was so proactive that I was like, I was going to like, uh, courses on filmmaking over the weekend or getting, uh, cassettes from friends of mine that had these things, cassettes that like Quentin Tarantino took like classes with Dove S Simmons. So I would go take classes with Dove S Simmons or, and, and I was always researching film, 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 and then how to make my own stuff. Uh, I learned how to do lighting because I wanted to eventually shoot something on my own because I figured, Hey, nobody's going to do anything for me. And it was just so difficult. What was so difficult for me was just dealing with other people that didn't have the same mindset. Like you'd be like, let's do this and let's do this. And Hey, we could do this. And I just remember one of my friend's parents, he was a writer and I had gotten to know her really well. And one day we're sitting there eating somewhere and she was like, you know what, Curtis, you're always busy. You always have something in the soup. You're always adding, you're always doing something. And even though it's not paying off, you just seem like you're always being proactive towards your career in acting. And that's always on your, that's your main concern. And I was like, yeah, well, <laughs> it's not paying off very much, <laughs> you know, but, but eventually I lost that kind of spark, you mm-hmm. know, where I just, you know, uh, you, you just get trampled on so much and you, you feel like you've, you've done enough to get past it or you've making a mistake where somebody else maybe would have gotten a second chance Cause in Hollywood, there's not a whole lot of second chances cool. and everybody out here is really in a hurry to get noticed. And, you know, even I was, and I think that's the big mistake is a lot of times people aren't ready to be noticed, even if they've got years of theater experience, even if they've got years of, you know, whatever, but Hollywood's a different beast. And so eventually I just was like, I got bitter, you know, and, I, and it showed in my auditioning, it showed in my, and how I acted toward uh, casting directors, I'd go in and they'd say, you know, they'd be not paying attention. You know, they're not paying attention and you know, they're not looking at you and they know they're not listening. And you're just like, yeah. And it just went through my performance. So, you know, so, thing. so you said that happened, that's happened 10 years ago. Are you, have you sort of come full circle now? Do you still, are you still pursuing acting? Like what was a little, okay. a little, the biggest thing I've done in the past, uh, five years or so was I, I made my own commercial because I could never get tape of me riding a horse or riding a motorcycle, but I was always auditioning for riding a horse or, uh, uh or excuse me. I was always trying to get parts in that world because I'm, I mean, if anybody here could see me, I'm pretty much a cowboy or, you know, I mean, like for years I had long hair and I could never get an audition for Sons of Anarchy and stuff like that. Which is crazy because you So I was like, well, let me kill two birds with one stone. I made a Harley Davidson commercial where I rode a horse and it was like compared to a Harley Davidson writer in the past. And I produced it and uh, co-wrote it with my director for the commercial and got a cinematographer on a smaller project I'd already done uh, with before. And it turned out pretty good. But that was probably the most proactive I've been in the last five years, you know, you, towards anything. You also wrote a screenplay, though, didn't you? Didn't I write I write stuff. My writing is terrible. No, it's not. I mean, it's just like, I, I, I mean, I'm not a fan of my own writing. It's like, it's, it's hard for me. And it's hard for me to get to sit down and 
really kind of camp myself and do anything. And I'm not, I'm not real. I don't have confidence in my writing is mm. I guess I should say. That's fair. So, okay. Yeah. So, so now we were both fancy fired, which is furloughed. Everyone likes that word, but it's <laughs> furloughed. It sounds very British. And it's like, no, it's just fancy fired. So we were yeah. both working at the same club, which is Curtis is my former boss, which is why I'm able to interview him now and was not able to interview him before because he decided if I had a job or not. So I was like, better not ask him. But now going forward, you so what what does post COVID look like for you? Um, post COVID, you know, I'm uh, I can't say what, but I've I've got a uh, I've got to move out of the state and work somewhere else. Okay, okay. <laughs> so um, I mean, got a promotion and moving on. Yeah, you know, that kind of thing. That's what my post COVID is. Are you excited? Oh, super excited! Okay. Yeah, super excited. And are you still going to pursue acting out of state? A little bit. Okay. I mean, you know, I won't for a, year, a couple of years probably. I mean, I'll just have to eventually, you know, whenever I find my feet there, kind of get a foundation, you know, I could try and pursue that. There are agencies there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and if you were given, okay, so what would be, and then we'll move on out of the intro, but what would be your ideal, like if someone handed you a screenplay today and said, Curtis, this is your role, and and you tell me, starring, uh, co-star, like what would be your top to bottom ideal script? I mean, I love westerns. I love westerns. I feel like I am a, a natural fit for them. I've been told so. I mean, all that kind of stuff. But I would, I would want something like a high plains drifter type of a thing. You know, it's a very, not very little speaking, just something in my wheelhouse in that in that world. You know, I mean, for me, I've always had a, an idea for a screenplay that I've never been able to put to paper of a Western. And if I could do that, that would be the ideal one, because it's basically about a man reacquiring his soul metaphorically through totems. I feel like I could do something like that. I always like moral stories, you know, and, and, and the Westerns were always like Shakespeare from America to me. That's right. You know, I mean, I mean, people like to shit on them, but that's because they're not paying attention to them. I mean, uh, like like the movie The Road Warrior I brought up earlier. That's a Western. If you look at it beat for beat and the story, the moral of the story is almost identical to the outlaw Josie Wales with Clint Eastwood. Sure. The two are the same. The two main characters are trying to find themselves uh, because uh, and uh, they're both running away from love and family because they never want to do it again because they lost their love and they lost their family. And and then they're forced to reacquire a family even whenever they're pushing away from it. And so it's basically just the whole movie is about two men, a man running from love. And that's kind of the basic of the story. But people don't want to look deep into something like, you know, Road Warrior or the outlaw Josie Wales, you're like, no, there's a reason. And there's a, they're very, very thick with, you know, exposition. Well, there's a, I mean, in my films, one of my film studies classes, we had to study Westerns and that was the chat was like, like, I don't want to do it. And then once you actually break them down, I was like, Oh, interesting. And Mm -hmm. they get sort of cataloged as like these racist, like anti-native American films. And often they're not in a lot of ways they celebrate native American culture. And Mm -hmm. I think, you seem to lean more towards Native American culture and having like an interest in that. Why is that? Well, I'm from Oklahoma. I mean, I grew up in Oklahoma and yet, you, you know, the five civilized tribes there, it was a big deal. I mean, everybody, the, there's a, there's a funny thing. Everybody in Oklahoma thinks they're Native American. <laughs> <laughs> I've never everybody heard. thinks that's like the big thing. Like everybody's like, Hey, 
uh, yeah, I've got like, you know, I'm a 16th Cherokee. And you're like, okay. No, you're not. <laughs> and even years, I was told by my family that we had some Native American blood in me. And, you know, my, the 23 and me is now, uh, no, nah, I'm <laughs> fully Scottish or like, really, yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> you're like, okay, exactly. we're the colonizers. So it's but... just like, you know, I mean, I grew up around that and I used to go have friends that were like, uh, really were full blood Native Americans and they were like, uh, dancers that were professional for awesome. their, their, they would do, go to red earth and do things like that where red earth was a play, uh, uh, what is it called? Um, it was just like once a year, every, all the, all the tribes would of cross America would come to Oklahoma and have this, just like, they would have like drum circles. Oh, I love they would shit. have these, you know, just, just, it was like a native American, America, native American fair. Sure. Basically. It was like and, a peaceful gathering to like yeah. get all, everybody together. And it was very spiritual and stuff That's like awesome. that. So I always was super interested in that stuff. So whenever I was a kid growing up, I would always read stories of crazy horse and sitting bull and, you know, things like that. And I just love that kind of stuff. So, I mean, I would, I mean, movie like Dances with Wolves, I think I saw it like five times in the theater. Wow. You know, and... That. Uh, so yeah, I mean, that's, that's my world. Well, that gets us up to today. So, all right, Curtis. Well, we hope everybody, we hope you all enjoyed your apps. We're going to go on to the entrees after a quick break. Well, folks, we are back and now, all right, Curtis, this is the speed round. I always call it a speed round of questions, but it's absolutely not speedy at all. And feel free to take your time and answer these questions that you haven't seen before and have no prepared answers for. So what was your <laughs> first job ever, ever, ever? I was a paper boy. Wow. And how old were you when you were doing that? I was like 12 or 13. I was in seventh grade. My older brother had a paper route and I was like, hey, he's got money and he, I could do that. And so I just got off on my bike and got up every morning in Oklahoma and was a, I had a, I was a paper boy all the way through high school. I quit to go to college. Kurt, uh, you know, Lucas Hurl. What up, Lucas? Yep. He's a, he's, we talked a- about doing a paper boy stuff all the time. We have a lot of the same opinions. <laughs> you could learn. It's like, we used to always joke around how much you could learn from somebody when you, when they open the door. And you have to ask them for money or they never open the door. <laughs> it's like you would have these people, that, you know, you're like a 12 year old kid. You're standing on their porch in the, in the fucking uh, rain. And then they're like, you're knocking and they would never, ever pay, you know? And what? so back then you used to have like those little books where you would carry like these little books and you had a receipt that you would rip off and give to them when they paid you. And I just would have like, full receipts from these people that they never paid and stuff. It was just hilarious. But you could also learn so much about people by how they live. They could have the most immaculate outer part of their house. It's landscaped perfectly. It's beautiful. You open the door and it looks like a tornado went off and you're like, (laughs) what the hell? And then other people, the opposite, the house outside looks like dog shit. You go inside, it's it's immaculate. There's not a speck on a white carpet. But you could learn a lot from people by how they live. And so it'd be amazing how many people would be like, come on in, Curtis, have a seat. And you got to know those people. And then they were just super friendly. But then others, you know, just get out of here, leave me alone. What, so it's like. When they wouldn't pay, would that mean that you were no longer tossing newspapers to their house until they did? Sometimes. But they would let it go a couple of months sometimes. The, 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 uh, my, my route manager would just be like, yeah, just throw in the paper and, you know, eventually, you know, but then eventually you just say, all right, I'm not going to throw any more. But sometimes they would pay if you just didn't, if you stopped throwing their paper. Yeah. That's what but I mean. Jesus. It's it just, it was odd. I mean, being a paper boy was fantastic though. I, I, I loved it. Why? You got outside. You were being able to do that. I could do it. My, I was, I mean, 
there were grownups that had paper routes that were like, they would just have a, a minivan and they would have like six or seven routes where I only had one or two. And by the time I was a senior and had a car, I would have like three or four, but you can get a lot. You can make some pretty decent money if you really hustle. And there was this one group, there was this one family that was this husband and wife and their twin sons. And one of the, the, the wife or the husband, they'd switch off, would stay at, at the, uh, they would have a paper drop off and a paper drop off might be at a, a, a a shopping center or something like that. And so you have to go pick up your papers. And whenever I was on my bike, my paper ma- route manager would drop them off at my house. So I only had one route and they would just be like, here's your, and he'd drop them off my, my porch. And then I would fold in my front li- lawn, uh, front living room. But the, this family had it down that they would fold papers until they got enough to put them in the car. And then two of them would stay back and fold the rest of the papers while the other ones would come back and reload. And then eventually, once they folded all the papers, they'd get in their other car, and the the two that were folding, and then they would go and finish the route. Now, how would so you, you could make some good money? And you said you were like twelve and thirteen when you started. What was where would school fit into that? Because you were also playing sports and stuff, and that's a seven day was, a week job. Yep, seven days a week. I would, I just got up, just got up. I would go and throw papers. I would get there right when the routes uh, when they would drop off the papers, and usually they would drop off the papers around three or three fifteen, somewhere around there. And I would go throw the papers and then would go back home and take like an hour nap if I had, if I could. And then I would go to school. What about the like summers when we're doing like two and three a days in sports? Like how would you, that's it. That's insane. You just did it. I just would do it. I just did it. I got up and do it. I mean, whenever I was in high school, I'd go out and party with my friends and (laughs) hang out and do all that stuff. And afterwards we'd be in the back. My, I just put them in my my friend in the back of the truck and they'd be, I'd be like that house and they'd throw it at the house oh, and, that house. <laughs> and we'd, we'd just stay up all night. And why is my paper on the roof? <laughs> <It'd be laughs> like I calls, I'd get that. Oh yeah. I'm sorry. My bad. That, so, yeah. <laughs> that so, small uh, town stuff is really fun. Okay. So, uh, paper boy till you were 18. And then what would you do when you wanted to go out of town? Cause Curtis or Curtis Lucas said he would like tag somebody in and they would cover for him. But how would you, yeah, my, handle- my route manager would do that. Oh, I mean, especially okay. when I was younger, but I would also have my older brother do it because my older brother had a paper route. And so sometimes he would do it for me, but they could have people that would, that would do it, that would take up your, so like, let's say when I got older and I had several routes and was driving myself, Number one, we didn't go on tons of vacations, but I would just have my route manager do it or they would split it up between a couple of other people that had routes near mine. And so they would take it for just like a week or something. And would you get paid per newspaper that you chucked or was it paid per route? Like, how would you? Nope. Per, per paper. So, you you, um, you know, I mean, depending on how many uh, people you had. So the, the, the idea is, is when you went and collected for paper, you also were selling papers. So even though you know, on your route, you would go to the houses that you weren't throwing to and you would knock on the door and then you had a little leaflet you could give them and be like, Hey, hi, I'm Curtis Nelson from the daily Oklahoma. And if you have, you thought about getting the paper and I'm your paper boy and all that kind of stuff. And then now nah, slam the door in your face or whatever, but you know, or you could just stick them in their door and then, you know, but like then you had to collect for the paper, whereas everything now is automated. Oh, okay. Okay. So I guess the paper route looks wildly different now than it did no i mean you still have to have somebody physically throw the paper but everything's but the actual pay and everything's automated now do you think that there will eventually be a time when paper is complete like papers are phased out completely probably i would hope it's kind of one of those things like photography you know it's like what are we going to do with all these digital images if a grid goes down hello (laughs) so real that's a (laughs) yes okay what was your next job 
my second job, I was, I mean, while I was still a paper boy, I got a, um, I was a bus boy job for a couple of years at a place called Steak and Ale Restaurant. Curtis, you were South playing, you were playing sports, you were going to high school, you were partying with your friends, you were a paper yep. boy and you were a bus boy. Like, were you on meth during this time? How did you do this? <laughs> I have a metabolism, unfortunately, people hate me about, but I have a metabolism is unquitting and I had an appetite that was, endless. I, I could, I could just go all day. Wow. I mean, I, I, I had so much energy, but I like my sleep too. So, I mean, I would, I would go to bed, you know, like when I could early and then sleep like 10 hours, but then for days I would go without sleep. Sometimes I would go. And when I say no sleep, two, three hours at a time, four hours, I can't do that nowadays. I love my sleep. And yeah. eventually that's what I did. But I just, I did, I always wanted money in my pocket. I never, I never liked relying on other people to provide things for me. So I just had time, I, you know, I, so I wonder I what just, that comes I knew, from. I, I have a father that's just a hillbilly from the hills of Waldron, Arkansas. It's a small little town on the Southeast side of, or excuse me, Southwest side of uh, Fort Smith there. And he was raised on a dairy farm. He has no high school education. And all I ever heard was work, 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 work. My dad never missed a, j- a day of work in his life until he came out to visit me one time and his plane got delayed wow. <laughs> in California. So my dad literally would work, work, work was a big thing. And being prideful about your work was a big deal to mm-hmm. my, uh, to my family. Okay. So I, I, I just looked at it as a natural thing because my dad would often just just yell out to us kids. He's like, remember, I'm not going to pay for you when you're 18. You just get out of here. <laughs> you know, you know, if you want to stay in this house, you got to have a job. And he didn't. And my dad wasn't forthcoming with a lot of cash for us to walk around and sure. throw around. And I love music. I love records. I love uh, getting my own things. I like buying my own clothes. My dad was one of those guys that would get us two outfits for school two new outfits for school and that's just what you wore. So unless I wanted to wear something different, guess what? (laughs) That's what you were wearing. (laughs) Yeah. Okay. So you do bus, boy. what was the name of the restaurant where you were the bus boy? Do you remember? Steak and ale restaurant. And what kind let me guess, was it a vegan, uh, fair Mm -hmm. with no cheese and all that? No. So it was just like a normal steak, steak place for like what mid range, normal steak place. Okay. I remember the first time ever really kind of laughing at a customer. It was at that restaurant where this woman ordered lobster and they brought it in the shell and it was already po- kind of popped out of the shell anyway, but it was, you know, but it's in the shell and they put it in front of her and she was just like, oh, oh my God, take it away. Why? Why would you? It, it was all about the shell. She <laughs> didn't want to see the shell. Yeah. <laughs> Although I, I'm in line with that because I have a angry relationship with meat. Like, and if the bone is visible, I like bone stuff just makes me sick. So I wonder if it just reminded her that that lobster had a little lobster family with other little baby lobster claws. And she was like, I've eaten the father and that's too much. That's probably what it was. Well, that I, it made me laugh because my dad is a wholesale butcher and I've been to <laughs> slaughterhouses. So I was like, oh. and I've hunted my whole life and fished my whole life. And I'm like, what? What? It's, oh, that, it's food. That smell is so specific. <laughs> that smell doesn't like gross you out when you because slaughterhouse smell is so specific. Fried blood is what you're smelling. Yeah, that doesn't that doesn't make you sick. No, it doesn't bother me. Oh, God bless. Okay, I didn't I didn't go all the time, but it's like you know I mean we were raised by hillbillies. I sure. Mean, and you well, know I mean look, to them 
somebody's got to kill it. I mean, like if we're eating meat, yeah, like we don't actually, it's sort of a level of privilege that I experience to be like, I don't want to see the bone or the blood or the whatever. It's like, okay. What's the famous line in the game of Thrones that Ned Stark said, if you're not willing to swing the sword, Oh, I don't know. You know, it. I mean, I don't know if that you're not willing to swing the sword, what are you doing? You never saw Game of Thrones? No. Uh, I know. Well, Game of Thrones, Ned Stark, there's this poor, the very, it's the very first episode, so I'm not ruining anything. Okay. And it's kind of the ethos through the rest of the movie of how much respect, or the TV show, of how much respect they had for the life and, and the things you're called to do while you're alive. And they're going to they're gonna kill this guy, and they're going to cut his head off and and uh, because of a crime you committed. And they were they were the opposite of a king where a king never swung the own, his own sword he had somebody else do it for him whereas in their world it was about the respect of the person and if you're going to pass judgment on somebody then you better be willing to swing the sword yourself and i always looked at food that same way it's like if you're not willing to kill it and gut it and skin it then be a vegan be a vegetarian well, and there's a reason I think that to go back to the theme of Native American culture, they I mean, that respect of honoring the fact that that animal did die so that you could eat or have clothing or whatever. There is a spiritual sort of this is a very hippie thing to say, but there is a spiritual transfer that happens when you yourself have taken that animal's life and you are now using its skin and you are, you know, I mean, I, I think that those the process of that uh, and I don't I couldn't get specific on which tribe, but I know there's a tribe that like there's a song they sing throughout the whole process. Like once they, I don't know. Anyway, I find all that stuff really lovely because I think that's all really, yeah, it's all very interesting. Yeah. And then they'd scalp you and kill you. (laughs) (laughs) Just waiting for that line, jackass. Okay. What was the next job you had? Well, I mean, uh, the other job, the next job I had was the airport airline job. And that wasn't a service job at all. That was, you know, you didn't get out. Um, and then, um, after that, I, the next job I got is whenever my brother, I went and lived with him in, in Glendale and I had got, I had used to frequent Inca Hoots in Oklahoma. They had one. Oh, get out. And didn't know that. yeah, they had one in Oklahoma city and it was a huge bar, huge. And I had a fake ID since I was uh, 18 years old, 17 years old, because my older brother was three and a half years older than me or two and a half years older than me. And when he turned 21, we took our IDs to the local Kenny Shoes where they had a DMV in the back of a Kenny Shoe store. And I just took his birth certificate and was like, hey, man, I lost my license. Get the fuck out of here. You guys look alike, but wouldn't that be suspect if both of you were 21 and look a lot alike, but not enough to be twins? Like if you're both yeah, going right. to the same bar, I'd same be like, ID. yeah, my, my brother never, my older brother is never hung out with us, but my, one of my best friends got the same ID doing the exact same thing. I'm like, Hey dude, this worked. <laughs> Just go down there and get your, take your, take my brother's birth certificate. And so somewhere in Oklahoma at that time, my brother had three IDs <laughs> running around. But so like when we went into a club, I'd be like, dude, don't come in the same time as me. It would like make this big old plan not to do this stuff. And I'm like, they probably would have never noticed, but it's like, we'd rehearse. Do you remember his birthday? 723, 68, 723, 68. All right, cool. So it was just hilarious, you know? So, but it's so funny yeah. that you would later go on to like chuck people out for doing the same kind of bullshit. Like <laughs> yeah, right. that's kind of crazy. But that's why I was wise to it. I'm hip to it. So anyway, so I went and lived with my brother that got me the fake ID. I was living on his couch and he said, let's go to Incahoots tonight. And I go, oh, sure, let's go to Incahoots. And I had frequented the Incahoots in Oklahoma City enough with my sister, his 
ex-wife and I would became good friends with the manager or the general manager of this in cahoots. And he just knew me as Curtis. And I show up to the in cahoots in California, in Glendale, California, three years later or something like that. And I walk up to the front door and me and this guy catch eyes as I'm walking to the front door. There's a big long line down the side of the block to get in. And he's like, Curtis? And get I'm like, Randy? <laughs> what the fuck are you doing here? And he's like, man, what the fuck are you doing here? I was about to tell you the same thing. <laughs> and I just said, hey, I came out here to be an actor. And he's like, you want a job? Wow. And I said, fuck yeah. And he goes, show up tomorrow. You got a job. And wow. I was security. And I immediately started working security at um, in cahoots and eventually worked into bar backing there and also then DJing there. And that's where I met Haley as I was a DJ. Oh, I love that. Okay. So I got three three service jobs in one at that same place. Now, when she asked requested the song, was she hitting on you? Or was she really just wanted to hear a song? She came up to take a better look at me. Did she really? Has she admitted that? <laughs> yes. That's so and I was cute. an asshole too. Were you really? <laughs> Curtis. Well, I mean, I wasn't an asshole on purpose. She had Haley's hair went all the way down to the back, I mean, to her ass. I mean, she had straight long hair and it was just so attractive to me. And there was another girl at the club who was kind of a bitch and everything that had long hair like that. And they look similar and she had bothered me in the past. And that's the one thing as a DJ is you find out for whatever reason, people take very, they're very passionate about their song choices and they think their requests are the most amazing thing ever. And I just looked at Haley thinking her, she was this other girl. Cause I was in the middle of actually mixing a song. You know, and, you know, when you're doing that, people are like, hello, excuse me. They're way putting their finger up. Can I, can I get your attention? And you're like, hold on, hold on, dude. I'm trying, I'm fucking mixing the song. Working. Here. I got my headphones on. I'm like, did it. So I just looked up and was real short with her. And she was like, you know, I'd like to request this, this dance. And I'm like, okay, yeah, sure. Good. No problem. And then she went back to her father and, or excuse me, her mother. And she was like, uh, her mother said, well, what'd you think? And he was, uh, he's good looking, but, uh, he's quite a dick. <laughs> <laughs> real asshole that one <laughs> okay so then how did so, you guys end up but then i found out i then i realized what happened after i mixed the song and everything i basically was like oh wait that wasn't the same girl and i had realized she was frustrated with me and i'd saw her look on her face i don't know what she was doing i mean i saw her from across the room and then so i got the song on and then i went over to her and i was like hey i'm sorry i've mistaken you for somebody else and da, da, da. and then we ended up dancing that night and then she'd come in more but she was the only girl that would come in with her mother that's the one thing when you work in a bar especially like the incoots was it was it was we had a we had a dollar beer night in california that we made in 1993 and 4 money we were making $40,000 on a wednesday night for dollar beer? For dollar beer. Holy The place was packed. But in Oklahoma, they had penny beer night. So you just had to give them a penny. And that was the thing is you can give them a penny, but you tip them two bucks or a buck and you're paying for the beer. You know what I mean? Wow. And so it was insane. So um, when you're in a bar like that, you start to see, no offense, ladies, <laughs> women that come in and you're like, man, she's pretty cute. Yeah. All right. Maybe I could talk to her or something like that. And then you see her, we, you know, every day for the next three months coming in that she would come in, leave with another guy, leave with a different guy, d talk to the douchebag. And you're like, oh, <laughs> so <laughs> no eventually, dice. you know, you just 
kind of stopped paying attention in a nightclub like that. And that's why I kind of blew Haley off at the beginning, I think. But because she was coming but, in with her mom, you had a, a sense that maybe... Then I started paying attention to her and I was like, look at her. She's here with her mom. She doesn't get fucking trashed and she doesn't, you know, puke all over the bar. <laughs> <laughs> why no. isn't that a good look, Curtis? I don't understand. Explain it to me. <laughs> hey, man. Uh, okay, so you so you were a DJ in cahoots then. Did, what was next? Um, Didn't you start so yeah, your own so, DJ um, business? DJ there. And then um, I actually got fired and we could talk about that later yeah. when you ask. Yeah. Uh, but I got I got fired from that job and a bunch of people wanted me to do weddings and stuff. Uh, even whenever I was still at the nightclub, they'd be like, hey, would you DJ my wedding? Uh, no DJ really has a, like a lot of country music to play. And I and I would like to have a country wedding. And I'd be like, sure. You know, and so I did a couple of weddings where I just rented the equipment and stuff like that and borrowed the CDs from there while I still worked at the club. But then after that, I um, got hooked up and got my own DJ business and I built my own DJ business from there. And so the next job I had was a mobile DJ where I do weddings. And I did that for like 15 to 16 years. How did you teach yourself back to the Incahoots job real quickly? Like, how did you go from bar backing to DJ? Like, those are that's a wildly different skill set. How did you know how to DJ? I've always loved music. I mean, I used to mix with my buddy, ah. Quinn Ramirez from Oklahoma. I okay. used to, he used to come to my house in like sixth and seventh grade and we would do old run DMC and Roxanne and old, uh, hip hop songs and stuff like that. And we'd mix them all together and we would literally do it. Cause I was the only one of the only kids that had a dual cassette recorder. Uh -huh. So I would in one cassette would play this music and then I would re I would edit the beat I wanted and the, the loop I wanted. And then I would pause it stick in another cassette. And then from there, so I had to do it literally the most old fashioned way you could. I, I wasn't able to hear the beats I was going to record unless I already knew the songs. So I would find this, find the beats and then I would do it that way. So you knew what so you were I'd doing. I kind of taught myself a little bit. Oh, okay. Um, but, but there was a, um, the, the company I worked for at Incahoots was, uh, called Safari Bar USA and they had Yucatan Liquor Stand, um, Safari Bar, and Incahoots were their three bars. And they were famously known for going around the United States and kind of like bar cleanup. They would fix up these bars that were doing poorly or they would just buy a club. They would make it really successful and then they would sell it and then they would get out of it. So that's what they were known for. And the head programming music programmer was this guy that had been around for years. And, and I told him I'd be interested if I could ever get like a, you know, part-time if he would show me or anything. So he literally would send me CDs home and stuff and be like, here, these, these are the, tell me what the BPMs on these are. And he would have me count BPMs and stuff and have me do. And he would tell me the difference between a hi-hat and, uh, you know, things like that. And he would tell me how to mix things in. And so like whenever he was in for like a week at a time, working with our current DJ, he would take me in the DJ booth and say, okay, here's how you do this. And he would show me. Ah, oh, that's what a lovely little mentorship that you didn't necessarily sign up for that you just got. That's lovely. Okay, so yeah. after mobile DJ, well, why? And did he hooked me up whenever I did the mobile DJ company. He he basically told me how I could get music for my DJ company, and told me what companies to use to be able to get them. Because you know that's the thing about being a mobile DJ is you just don't go out and buy the Metallica CD or you don't go out and buy the Lionel Richie CD yeah. and use one song off of it. They have like these CDs that are 
by, uh, was it subscription only? And you had to be a professional. So he gave me the name and actually company and told him that I was a professional DJ that allowed me to be able to buy that stuff for a compilation of music. Does that make sense? Yeah, definitely. So, I didn't know that's how it worked. I And so then why did you stop? Because you were running your own business. Why did you stop doing that? Like, why'd you get into something else? The DJ, the DJ business eventually dried up because of digital media. I mean, wow. it was, it was like everything at the time, you know, if you were going to be a DJ, uh, in the night, uh, in the eighties, nineties, or even early two thousands, you had to have the compilation of music. And usually the only people that would have that compilation of music were people that were passionate about DJing or passionate about music. So of when Napster came along, that was it. anybody become a DJ oh, because wow. you, they used to have people that would sell stuff. You would, you would see signs around Hollywood are you looking to get a compilation of music to be a DJ? And they would sell you like 10,000 songs that you would need to be able to do a wedding or something like that, you know, and it was all digital. So you could get them for 200 bucks. You could now get 10,000 songs that some guy just had downloaded and was now going to give you his whole collection. Whereas you kind of had to compile that in the past. And then, eventually everybody thought that they could be a DJ uh, managers of hotels, banquet halls and stuff like that would just complain to me. They're like, God, what is it, Curtis? Uh, so the DJs are going downhill. Like nowadays they don't know how to run a wedding. They don't know how to manage a wedding. They don't know how to, you know, do the things that you do as far as like emceeing. So, you know, they know how to mix and they're fantastic at doing old run DMC hits and stuff like that, but they don't know when to play it, how to play it, why to play it. And that's another thing I learned at working as a nightclub. There's a method to your madness. You just don't put on with your favorite song. And because it mixes with this other song, you're selling alcohol. So you start with low BPM and you build, build, build. Then you stop and you bring it back down again, then you build it, build it quicker, quicker, more energy, more energy, and then you stop it, and then you build, 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 and everybody's pumping, and then cut it back down, and everybody goes and drinks. Wow. So you got to give time for people to drink when you're in a nightclub, and that philosophy transfers over when you do a wedding and things like that. You have to know how to keep pace. You just can't go on and play Macarena just because everybody wants to hear it. <laughs> you know, and you just can't do it. So there's a method to your madness. And, and, and with your, if you're an untrained DJ at a wedding, it sounds so stupid or a bar mitzvah. It's, you need to know what you're doing, but yet if you don't, and you don't have the music, I mean, it's not going to be good. I mean, I did, I did a, a party for, I did a reunion for a, um, all black school in Hawthorne from the seventies. And I was terrible because I didn't have the music. I didn't have the knowledge, but I'd always worked with this reunion company and they just did. They just booked me the gig and it was the worst. So, I mean, did people complain? Oh, fuck. Yeah. And, and by the way, I apologize the entire time. I'm like, I'm so sorry, guys. You know, you're like, I know I'm I'm fucking this up. I I know I'm doing terrible, you know? (laughs) So, you know, it was, it was bad. And so I did the best I could. Oh, bless their heart. So, okay. So then after, um, so what were the, what were the next, uh, c- 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 wow. What were the next customer service jobs after a mobile DJ? I, while I still had my mobile DJ business, I, I was a fitness instructor. Um, I started, I got my personal training license and I was always good at fitness and training. And one of the trainers came up to me at a 24 hour fitness and was like, you know, you always seem to know what you're doing and you, you seem pretty good at this. You, you ever thought about being a trainer? And 
no, I haven't, but yeah, I guess I could. And, and I started doing that. So I did that for like the next 15 years while I was a DJ. Jesus. And he was like, hey, you know, you seem like you're on meth or whatever because you are always moving. So <laughs> why not, not do true. this? Not <laughs> but okay. I mean, you know, these are if you if you see a pattern here, these are all things that I did so I could still have. I mean, Freedom. by the way, I had two kids at this time whenever I had gotten the fitness job. Excuse me. I had one and then I got a second one. Um, I started training p- professionally in like 1999 and my son was a year old and then we had a second son. So, I mean, these jobs are all things that allowed me to be a father, a stay at home father during the day and then work at night. So I could have my days open to audition and things like that. I was the guy that would run in and have my kids in an audition and I'd have two baby strollers or one of them pushing the baby stroller and the other one in it. So I was that guy. Wow. And I was a stage manager at one of the top acting schools in Hollywood. So what are the, so give me the rest of your, um, customer service jobs and we can get into the specifics when I ask the question. So what was next? I was in, I was at Chili's server for two weeks, uh, (laughs) like that. And then I became, and then I was, um, after, um, my fitness job, uh, I was still a fitness instructor, but I was doing it personally. And then I was working in Warner Brothers security. I worked there for three years and then I worked at the house of blues as security. And then I worked at saddle Ranch as security. And then I worked, uh, the comedy store and then the manager is a comedy store. So was, was getting into security, just like an easy transition after, you know, fitness instructing and having done the DJ thing, you sort of understood how clubs worked and you were fit. So was security, uh, like a move that made sense for you or did someone approach you and say, Hey, you need to start like, we need someone like you doing security. No, I mean, I was always the one thing I could say about my abilities as a security officer. I'm not a huge guy. I'm six foot three and at my largest, I was like 215 pounds and I'm, I'm about a 200 now. And so I'm, I'm on the smaller side as far as security guys, I'm never going to over, I'm not going to dominate somebody or I'm not going to intimidate somebody to the point where I'm just going to back them down or something from, from their nonsense. So I had to learn how to talk to people. And, mm-hmm. and I was always good at talking to people. And I learned that ironically from Mr. T in the 70s, here. 80s, they used to have this bouncer competition back in the day on live world, wide world sports. They would do that. And I remember watching Mr. T before he was in Rocky three in this thing. And I thought this guy was the coolest thing, but one of the best answers he ever gave about being a bouncer, they always want to know how many people you beat up or how many fights you've been in and stuff like that. And he goes, man, I don't want to be any fights. I, I, I just want to come to work and I don't want to hurt somebody. I just, how I usually, I just talk people down and I just am able to sit and listen to somebody. And he's like, so you just have to sit and listen to somebody. And so as security, people don't look at it as a service position a lot of times, but it absolutely is because you're the first person somebody sees when they come in the door most of the time. And you might be the last person they see when they come out. Hello. <laughs> <laughs> but that helped me so much. there folks this is the end of part one and there will be two parts we know how this works already if you're new to the podcast you don't but you'll figure it out because you know it's pretty clear part one part two i think you can figure that out and join us next monday for part two with my former boss curtis nelson he gets into the job we used to have together (laughs) 